Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are in 2013 now. Now that we're safely into it, we know there's no chance of 2012 sucking us back into its clutches. We thought it'd be about time to just run through some of the uh, the big science that happened in 2012. Because, it, as is generally the case, science did not take the year off. Maybe you didn't pay attention to everything that came out of the science headlines, but you you probably caught some of these stories. These are the big ones. These were the the ones where uh, uh, if you were going to talk science just with uh, random folks uh, on your commute to work or you know at a dinner party, these are some of the topics that would have come up. So it, it serves to remind us that hey, we had some really big uh, you know landmark. Um, achievements in science, and those are spilling off into where we are in 2013. Yeah, and um, actually we had some themes come out of this too, uh, which we'll discuss, but it's kind of interesting that this was a year in science where you really saw a lot of innovation, of course, as you always do, but um, particularly by uh, in the private sector and by citizens, something called... Um, Citizen science, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, there's a ton of stuff to choose from, but we're going to hit uh, the, the big items on the list, some of which we have talked about before, but we're going to um, just try to cover them and say why they are so very important and why they are actually game changers uh, to our reality, really. So first off, one of the big things about 2012 was this was the first year uh, in ages that we had we didn't have a space shuttle. Space shuttle Endeavor, final mission 2011. And in 2012, its activities basically involved, uh, you know, coasting down the street into storage. Yeah, I mean, basically what you saw was the shuttering of the uh, the shuttle program and then the actual concrete manifestation of that truth. Yes. Um, occurring in 2012, we saw four different shuttles that were ferried off to new lives in different places, uh, usually museums. Um, or uh, space-themed attractions. Without any kind of immediate replacement uh, for those shuttles either. Right. So um, probably most notably was the Endeavor Mm -hmm. uh, shuttle towing that, which became a pretty big spectacle, right? Because if you tow a shuttle through the streets, people will notice trees will need to be cut down, signs removed. Uh, But before the Endeavor was actually... um, towed to its final place, uh, it actually was flown from the Kennedy Space Center on the back of a 747 to California, and then there it was towed by, I believe it was Toyota Tundra, mm-hmm. uh, to its new home at the California Science Center in Los Angeles. Yeah, there was some fabulous um, video footage of that shuttle making its way down the street. They, like, you know, sped it up so that it was uh, a little snappier, but it, it, was, it, was, it was emotional to, to watch. And that's the thing. I think that people are looking at this as a new era, that this was definitely a manifestation of what, you know, was happening in space exploration. Uh, most notably, what we see is we see the private sector picking up where NASA might have, um, you know, if they had more funding left off. Right. Uh, and, of course, that, that brings us to SpaceX, California-based SpaceX, which uh, which everyone's heard of over the years. They've been involved in a number of, of different projects. But uh, most notably, uh, they are the, they're the first private company to deliver cargo to the International Space Station now. Which is a pretty big deal. It, we were talking earlier, and I uh, about this, and I I brought up the possible analogy of um, a dad who teaches his uh, his teenage son to drive. 
So in this scenario, the uh, in NASA is the father, mm-hmm. and the, and he's been doing the driving. He's been doing the driving to, the, to school in the mornings. He's been doing the driving to the grocery store, and now finally he's reached the point where all right, I think I think the son can handle it. You know, he's a little he's a little cocky. he's, yeah. he's, he's new. He's, he's maybe a little little a little heavy on the gas, but. He's ready. I'm not going to drive anymore. I'm going to let this guy drive me to the grocery store. Yeah, and and uh, you can actually take that analogy and even say that the parent, NASA, gave them a little test run, and that was back in May of 2012 when uh, the Dragon capsule uh, actually delivered 162 meal packets, 45 of them low-sodium, by the way, a laptop computer, a change of clothes for the station astronauts, and 15 student experiments to the International Space Station. So that was the first kind of like, well, let's see you on a test run here. Yeah. Um, that was obviously successful. So then, as you say, we've got the, the larger, more official, hey, can you actually take a bunch of cargo up to the ISS for us, mm-hmm. uh, that later decision. And eventually they're, they're hoping to do humans in it by 2015. That's take right. humans up. Which is kind of like, you know, the, the father doesn't trust the son enough to say, let's not go for a Sunday drive with, with your, your mom and your grandma. Let's, <laughs> let's focus on you and me getting to the grocery in one piece. All right, now let's do maybe a, a, a trip to the, to the hardware store there and back again. All right, we've got that check clicked off. We're working towards that Sunday drive. Yeah, so, I mean, this is just, uh, I think, what is going to become a, a good indication of things to come, right? Um, NASA and SpaceX have a contract for a dozen flights to the space station. And then, as I said, that October trip after the May test run was the first official one. Um, and then SpaceX isn't the only player in this commercial space. We've talked about Virgin Galactic, mm-hmm. uh, Sir Richard Branson's private space flight company, and their uh, recently completed high-altitude test. And Orbital Sciences is also under contract with NASA and will also launch a demonstration flight. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely informs us about what what the, about this age of space exploration that we're entering this this commercial well we're not only entering we're we're in it now this age of uh, of commercial space exploration uh, on one hand it's it's kind of like a um, oh kind of like a libertarian uh, dream you know this idea of the of the of, of big government is not doing as much, but it's the the actual corporations. Like I can imagine the individual human spirit. Yeah, like yeah. like Ron Swanson would really appreciate this. I feel <laughs> like you know, um, uh, you know, a Sweetums capsule going into into space, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, and and it. And so, but I mean, some people are, that's going to rub them the wrong, wrong way. You know, it's the idea of, oh, well, it's, it's corporations doing this and, you know, corporations, uh, don't have the best track record with, uh, with everyone, right? It, it reminds me of an article I, I did this year, uh, or I did in, in 2012, uh, 10 fictional spacecraft we wish were real. Mm-hmm. And I tried to, you know, I tried to make it a, a little more thought provoking instead of just like, here's 10 rad spaceship because spaceships, Fictional spaceships, by their very nature, are rad. You can throw—it's like throwing a dart, you know, at a, at a wall. Uh, any of them you hit, they're going to be cool. That's just how it works. Uh, so I was trying to look at, like, what in what way do fictional spacecraft inform our ideas about the actual future of uh, space exploration? And I think I left off the USS Enterprise, even though the, obviously the Enterprise yeah. is a really cool ship. Uh, Iconic. Yeah, and it's like a government thing. It's a, it's about exploration. It's about a, and, and being ambassadors, and it's all these positive uh, aspects. Yes, it's a warship too, but for the most part, it's a very much a, a positive vision of, of our of our future amid mm-hmm. the stars. Um, so I don't think I included that one, but I did in, include uh, the USS uh, Ishimura, which is like a um, it's the setting for a, a space horror video game where it's uh, where there are all these like zombies running around the ship, uh, but the ship itself is a commercial vehicle 
uh, designed to crack open planets and harvest minerals. Because ultimately, well, that's a, you know, it's a far darker idea than, uh, than, than the Enterprise. And I'm just talking about the function, not the zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of just going out and harvesting minerals and it's all about the, the bottom line. It's, it's, uh, it's a bleaker image, but it's ultimately a motivating idea, you know? You can actually yeah. see that getting us out there into space. If there is money to be had, if there are asteroids to be mined, right. then people are going to throw some money at it. Well, and that's what we're seeing, right? That's what is lining up with this because we've talked about the company Planetary Resources mm-hmm. and uh, its desire to mine asteroids for platinum, which could be pretty lucrative. Of course, it would take a while for them to actually get their investment back, the money that they put into that investment to actually start making money. But really, when you're talking about an endeavor like that, you're talking about a generational accumulation of wealth. So they're right. not doing this. The, the people who are behind that are so very rich that they're they're not worried about getting, you know, some money from a pound of platinum. Right. They're just trying to um, actually put their their lives and uh, their their effort into this thing that will affect generations to come. Right. Yeah. So that's another um, theme that that largely is tied to is Mars One which is the completely private Dutch company that is committed to establish, establishing the first human presence on Mars by the early 2020s. So, again, you do see that coming into play, this idea of privatization really taking over. But with that comes responsibility, and we covered this a bit in Space Junk, right. because we talked about how much is out there in orbit and how it's actually a problem. So could this be a good thing, this privatization, knowing that uh, you'd have to have companies come in and clean this up? Yeah, if you want to make money in space, you need to keep uh, our orbit clean so that we don't entomb ourselves in this uh, this this uh, enclosing shell of space garbage. Yeah, if you don't want your hugely expensive instruments, you know, crashed into by a piece of space junk, then hey, you gotta yeah. get up there and uh, start sweeping. If you want to sprinkle nutmeg on Mars, you, you've got to pay the price. Which, that's what I hope the Dutch do. Yeah. I was gonna say, yeah. what, what? Yes, now it makes sense. The Dutch, yet yeah, Mars One will yeah. be covered. Uh, I'm sure Mars will be covered. With, with nutmeg. Um, so these are a couple of related podcasts. We have a space junk removal podcast and asteroid mining if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Um, but certainly uh, 2012 was the realization of this idea of privatization in space. Cool. Now what else happened in space? And, and there's an interesting um, trend with all of these space stories we're mentioning because they're all stories that we really got to participate in as viewers. Um, I mean, participate. We didn't, act, you know, we didn't actually control anything, but we really got to feel like we were there for it, you mm-hmm. know, because we were either huddled around a TV or we were taking a few minutes away from our workday to watch it streaming on a, on one of the news sites. Uh, you know, we were we were there when uh, when the Dragon capsule uh, uh, met up with the International Space Station, and we were there when uh, Mars Curiosity visited the red planet. Which was so incredibly cool because, first of all, think about all the engineering that went behind launching this craft, okay, into space. This was, when it was launched, it was November 2011, mm-hmm. okay? All of that, just to get it up in the air and to get it on the right trajectory, that's the easy part. It was landing it nine months later that yeah. became incredibly tricky and put everyone on pins and needles. Um, because if you think about this, by the time that the uh, Mars Curiosity capsule was at the top of the atmosphere from the surface it takes seven minutes okay um to get to actually land and it takes 14 minutes for the signal from the spacecraft to reach the earth Mm -hmm. so 
when they first get word that the vehicle has touched the top of the atmosphere, there's a seven-minute window that requires the computer to land the machine, okay, because there's this delay. And it has to do so flawlessly. It has to manage a landing with speeds of 13,000 miles per hour that have to come to a dead stop using really complex mechanical maneuverings. And this is just, I mean, to watch this, it's just a beautiful ballet of engineering and innovation. I get a little excited when I when I think about this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I saw it referred to as seven minutes of terror. This, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the whole thing, I mean, it's kind of... It, it was kind of like an Ocean's Eleven type uh, scheme, you know, to actually land this thing and land it successfully. And uh, and and you really got that when you're following it uh, on on the video streams. You, you're you're, yeah. you're you're totally invested in it because nobody wants to watch an expensive wreck on Mars, you know, an expensive crash. Um, no. And so when when uh, it, it actually came off, you know, successfully, everyone rejoiced. That Mohawk guy jumped up and down. You know, <laughs> well, had by all. And most importantly, we were able to land the most sophisticated explorer ever on the red planet. Yeah, and that again those 7 minutes of terror where where you really saw the magic happen and you begin to understand how it there every single component of that landing absolutely mattered and mm-hmm. had to be done again flawlessly because once you begin to to enter that um the atmosphere you have the heat shield protecting the capsule from the 1600 degrees Fahrenheit um of the atmosphere and then uh, you have to deal with the atmosphere of Mars, which there's enough of that you have to deal with it, right? But right. not enough to actually slow the ca- to slow it down and to dr- um, create some drag. And then you have the heat shield popping off right at the, the the right moment, so that the machine can then begin to see where it is. You can begin to use um, the cameras. And okay, so that's just one tenth of that part of that landing. Then you have a parachute that weighs 100 pounds deploying, and it can withstand pressures of up to 65,000 pounds of pressure, and it it slows it down to 200 miles per hour. But that's still not enough, (laughs) right? So now the parachute has to pop off, and rockets now help divert Curiosity away from the parachute, so it doesn't collide with that. But it now that that gives it the ability to have some measure of control of its landing. So then you begin to see it descend in a very controlled manner. Okay, here's the other problem you have: you've got rockets, and you don't want them to kick up so much dust that you then ruin some of of the um, the machinery right. on Curiosity. So what do you do? Oh, oh, let's now deploy the the tether system from the rockets. So then it can start to lo- to lower away, and then the rockets uh, boosters yeah, just fly away. That was one of the really amazing parts too, where it's you're you're, you're rocketing down there, and then the rockets are lowering it down on a on a, on a string, and uh, ah, yeah, it's was, it was just incredible. That yeah, I mean, it's breathtaking to see all of that unfold, and then as you say, all of a sudden you have a successful um, landing of one of the most complex labs on on wheels that mm-hmm. you could ever want on Mars taking soil samples and uh, really actually starting to engage with the mission of this, which is to understand the past and the current habitability for life on Mars. All right, so what else do we have on the plate? Other big news that happened in 2012, uh, we... Have to mention the Higgs, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course, the the Higgs has just continued to be a big story because it it seems like for ages now. Because it's always like, oh, when are they going to find the Higgs? What is the Higgs? Like, because the it's it's one of those questions. Just just what is it? Is a question that continues to sort of come up because it's it's kind of a it's what you hear about the Higgs all the time, and it's easy to either not learn what 
the heck it is to begin with or to sort of forget it. Now, we did a, a whole episode on this um, about the Higgs. You can look it up in our uh, list of episodes. Uh, but, you know, essentially the, the idea is it's a hypothetical um, subatomic particle that uh, emits a field that gives that gives matter mass. And if it if we could find it, if we could prove that it actually exists, it could explain uh, a number of the mysteries uh, surrounding the cosmos, um, our understanding of physics. It's uh, it's a suspect in a crime that should exist, and we've just been looking for it. Yeah, right, because this is really, um, this is the big idea, right? That this mm-hmm. Higgs field exists, and it's a, a kind of cosmic molasses that keeps all of us together. So if we can really prove this, and we can really get a little bit more uh, at this question of how do we exist, how do we come to exist, what really keeps us all together, what is this reality that we're all congealed in, Uh so here's the deal. The Large Hadron Collider, which is headquartered in Geneva, yeah. is tasked to try to find this Higgs particle. Because, again, if this can be isolated, then it gives credence this idea that this Higgs field, this cosmic molasses, does exist. Smashing those atoms, looking for the brief existence of this particle before it blinks out in, uh, again. Uh, sort of committing the same crime over and over again in the, in the hopes that you'll glimpse the suspect. That's right. After these primordial fireballs are left, after these proton collisions in the Large Hadron Collider. So in July 2012, it was reported that a Higgs-like particle was found. And this is really important. They're calling it Higgs-like. Okay, The jury is still a bit out about this, right? Because there's been some more information about this. Because we found the suspect. We found the suspect. The problem is another suspect showed up. Ah, see, because it's like uh, like a Raymond Chandler uh, novel. You know, it's like you reach that point where, ah, oh, they found the, the murderer. Nope, it just gets a little more complicated. There are two suspects. Mm-hmm. Or may, maybe there wasn't a murder at all. I mean, that's how mysteries work, and that's how this one is kind of working out as well. Well, they've been going through the data, and what they found is that now two bumps show in the data casting doubt on the experiment, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that there appears to be one Higgs boson with a mass of 123.5 giga electron volts and one with 126.6. So in a December 14th article in Scientific America, excuse me, in Scientific American, it explains that it's been thought before that there might be one more than one Higgs, but not so close together. That's where the mystery becomes even deeper, right? Because yeah. it's okay if there's another one, but just not so close together. So, again, it's pointing to this question about uh, whether or not there's a problem with the experiment. And physicist Adam Falkowski wrote on his blog, quote, in this case, they most likely signal a systematic problem rather than some interesting physics. First and least, it would be quite a coincidence to have two Higgs particles so close in mass. So, again, the jury is still out. But this is the fact that they're getting this close is still a game changer, and it's still amazing. And I think it points to this idea that in science, you have to continue to go back to the drawing board. This is what makes good science good science, right? You just don't accept that this was a Higgs particle. You begin to go through that data more and more and uh, corroborate it to the point where there's just absolutely no question that it is. And they're not there right now. Yeah. Um, But they're getting closer. Yeah, I mean, science creeps forward, and uh, sometimes it has to creep a little 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 ways back to uh, recalibrate. You know, it's like a Roomba running into stuff in your uh, living room. But it's figuring it out, right? Um, so, so yeah, we continue to watch what happens with the, with the Higgs. Um, 
but certainly it was it was definitely a big year for the Higgs, regardless of what it actually ends up to, you know being the case with these particles that we. Uh, these Higgses that we sort of found. Yeah, more to come on that, I think. Um, All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about citizen science. All right, we're back. Um, So what else happened in 2012? Well, uh, a lot of this is sort of continuing business, of course. Science is a continuing business. We continue to search for certain things. We continue to search out uh, things, and one of the things we've been looking for, exoplanets. Planets elsewhere, in the in the in the uh, galaxy, planets that maybe might be like Earth. That's what we have our eye out for. Yeah, and it turns out that there is a ton of data to sort through in order to find Earth-like planetary candidates, and it's uh, really helpful when you have citizens, in this case, citizen scientists, to help sort through the extensive data. And this is actually data that's provided by NASA's Kepler mission. So here's this really cool thing. 15 new planet candidates, we call them, again, planet candidates, because mm-hmm. they have to have to be a certain distance from the sun in order to be uh, considered uh, Earth-like properties or have Earth-like properties, right? Um, they've been discovered by Planet Hunters. And Planet Hunters is this project of these citizen scientists. These are people who have access to the data that NASA has given them. And what they do is they look through all that data to try to figure out habitable planets. And, again, like I said, in that Goldilocks zone, right, that right. distance from the sun. And not too hot, not too cold, approximate size. You know, it just has to be just right. Right, and just the right distance uh, from a star to have liquid water, right, which right. we know would be really important for life. Uh, so, anyway, this, this is what is so cool about this organization is that they have found the 15 new planet candidates, and in addition, a planet named PH1 with four suns was discovered by the group. That's pretty cool. That's a lot of suns. Four. That's four <laughs> times as many suns as we have. I mean, the, the really amazing thing about this is that you mentioned earlier about the the, the participation aspect mm-hmm. um, of of getting to, to you know huddle around the TV or the computer monitor and watch things like the the Mars landing um, and to watch the endeavor uh, you know going down the street. And here is an example though of, of actual participation where these uh, citizen scientists are getting to sort through the data. Uh, that um, that that Kepler has uh, amassed, and we're talking about 150,000 stars here. That yeah. they're they're sorting through the data, they're examining the brightness measurements that are taken by Kepler, uh, looking for signs that there could be planets orbiting them. And then when a planet passes in front of a star, there should be a noticeable and temporary drop in brightness. And this is the sort of data, again, that they're looking at. And the idea is that the human brain is actually better at detecting this than an algorithm. So also someone who is maybe an an amateur astronomer who is very excited about this work. Um, So you get this group together that that is all um, trying to find you know, some sort of sign that there might be another Earth-like planet. And again, we've talked about this in our podcast about will we find an Earth-like planet planet in the, like, anytime soon. And uh, this is something that seems like it could happen for us in the next 50 years, that we could spot an Earth-like planet. On one level, it just it gives us a lot more information about what is out there. Mm-hmm. But also, there's a lot of imagination caught up in it, because an Earth-like planet could conceivably have Earth-like life. Life on Earth is the only model of life that we have, and so when we're extrapolating and trying to figure out what alien life might consist of, that ends up what we look for. You know, we end up looking for an Earth-like world. So 
possibility of life elsewhere in, in the universe, um, and also the possibility of a world that we could go to, that we could colonize if we're still into that kind of sci-fi idea uh, by the time the technology actually catches up with us. Yeah, and I think it's another good example of a discipline that benefits from an institution like NASA allowing the public to comb through data, uh, sharing their data, having it open, and essentially crowdsourcing meaningful results. Yeah, I mean, again, it's kind of like uh, the, the father raising his son, his son, citizen <laughs> citizen science, and uh, he's out there grilling steaks, right, And uh, or or grilling peppers and or what have you, um, the vegetarian option. He's out there grilling, and uh, the son is interested, and has reached the point where yes, here I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the main cooking, but you can here uh, you can rub some uh, some uh, barbecue sauce on it. Not that you would put yeah. barbecue sauce on a steak, but yeah. And again, you see this thing. Uh, well, you could put barbecue sauce on a steak. I, well, I guess you could, but I mean, if it's a really good steak, there's no sense to put sauce on it. But it, the important thing is that you're involving the kid in the process. But you're right. If it's chewy and tough, you got to throw yeah. something on there. Uh, but yes, it, that's what I think is happening again. There's this sharing of data, this involving of, of people, you know, out on the street, right? You know, and some of this is part and parcel to where we are in terms of technology and community because I wouldn't be able to do this necessarily 10 years ago, 20 years ago right. to share data to this extent and then try to get the results um, in a way that was efficient. Yeah. So that's Joe Public. That's just uh, everybody, every random person on the street potentially contributing to science. But then there's still plenty of room for the exceptional individual, for the, the Joe Awesome, if you will. Um, and uh, that brings us to our next two uh, items on this list. Felix Baumgartner. Yes. Yes. And uh, this was another example that everyone got to huddle around the, the TV or the computer and watch this happen. We had a lot of these moments in the, in the last year, the, you know, the, the moments that really harken back to the day of like watching the moon landing, where we all got to, to become really excited about uh, about watching something historic take place. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's, here's this Austrian daredevil who broke the speed of sound in October 2012 by jumping from the edge of space, Mm -hmm. a feat that he had spent five years, five years preparing for. It took him two hours on a pressured capsule powered by a helium balloon to reach a platform 24 miles up. And before stepping onto the platform, this I think is interesting, he ran through a 40-step checklist. Because, you know, before you take the big plunge, you want to make sure that everything is is, uh, crossed off, right? Uh, And then he stepped off the platform and he hurled through the sky at more than 830 miles per hour, at one point reaching 833.9 miles per hour, or Mach 1.24, breaking the sound barrier in a four-minute freefall before popping his parachute and pulling off a running landing in a New Mexico desert. Yeah. I mean, that that is amazing right there. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it was. it's just some amazing footage to watch, uh, and just quite a, I mean, just it's kind of terrifying to watch, too. Like, I, I'd, yeah. I would imagine if I did a 40 item checklist it would just be like different deities that i was just making sure i was square with before i jumped out you know <laughs> yeah like all right yahweh are we good cool all right then, uh, you're just throwing candy out in the air at that point so, yeah oh, just make sure you, i have just, all my bases covered. yeah this is to the air gods yeah um well and also i mean you have to understand too that again this was five years in, in the making and this is someone who was so good at what he did um that he had the ability to control himself 
at those sort of s- speeds. And he did say at one point that he felt like he was he was going into a flat spin, mm-hmm. and he felt all the blood rushing to his head, and he thought he was going to lose control. But then he got it under control and was able to continue to accelerate in his speed. Yeah, I mean, that's an important thing to realize about it is that it, it is much more than just the technology of getting someone up that high and then, you know, booting them out of the capsule. Yeah. There's a... It, it w- there's a lot of skill that was involved in this. It's not merely falling. Uh, and technology, because... Yeah. I mean, it was falling, but it's falling with finesse. Uh, yes, falling, yeah. I mean, you'd have to have the experience in order to really know or to anticipate what that might feel like at those speeds. Um, so he also had technology on his side. He wore a 100-pound pressurized flight suit and helmet, and without protection, um, his blood would have been vaporized because the atmosphere was so thin when he jumped at that height. Uh, the temperature at his launch point was estimated at seven degree, 70 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, if not lower. So this is really a game changer um, in, in that this not only does this pressurized flight suit have implications um, elsewhere, like, for instance, you know, astronauts, mm-hmm. um, if they had to bail out of a capsule early, this could absolutely save their life um, if it was at the right um height and so on and so forth. Um, but, I mean, it also kind of speaks to this new technology that allows us to, again, augment ourselves in a way that we're able to do things that are beyond our human capacity or what we think we're able to do. So there you go, Felix Baumgartner. Uh, amazing moment in uh, 2012 science, and that video is still out there if you want to want to check it out. Uh, we'll, I'm sure, be out there <laughs> indefinitely. Uh, but uh, not to be outdone, there's also another individual Another Joe Awesome that uh, that made some headlines, and 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 this guy is really is close to like a Howard Hughes that we have today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, except he hasn't yet entered like the full crazy mode, but certainly in terms of a filmmaker mm-hmm. who is all about creating something awesome and ingenious on the screen, but is also very interested in uh, achieving great things outside of the film world. And uh, we're of course talking about James Cameron who became the first aquanaut to reach the deepest recesses of the Mariana Trench, uh, touching down the Challenger Deep site about 11 kilometers below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. About, yeah, which is about 6.8 miles. And uh, he did that in a one-person submersible called the Deep Sea Challenger, and it took him two and a half hours to get there. And what I think is interesting is he said, well, you know, it's pretty much mostly devoid of life. I saw some shrimp-like creatures. <laughs> but he did say that it was amazing to be in such a, a massive place that you just looked and, and it, you know, the horizon just dropped off. In fact, there's no real horizon because what we're talking about here is um, really this steep trench. And to even call it a trench is a bit of a misnomer yeah. uh, because the Mariana Trench is really an abyss, yeah. and it's uh, located at a subduction zone. And subduction zones occur where one part of the seabed, in this case the Pacific Plate, dives beneath another, and this is the Philippine Plate. So, you know, take that all into consideration, uh, as well as that it's in a remo- remote location, and you really do have this dramatic landscape unfolding before you. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the sense that the sky is the, uh, the the great blue yonder, this is the deep blue yonder. I mean, this is really largely unexplored territory uh, beneath the, the surface of the sea. Yeah, we talked about that in our Sunken Dangers mm-hmm. podcast this, um, in 2012, because we talked about how we know more about the moon's surface than we, than we know about um, the oceans and yeah. what's going on with that. So, 
again, you know, I would be tempted to call Cameron a ham if he wasn't so dedicated to this yeah. endeavor. But I mean, I mean, he's a bit of a ham. But yeah, but yeah. He, there's no denying the awesomeness of this. Yeah, yeah I mean, eight years to to uh, engineer and make this submersible, mm-hmm. which then says, okay, well, if he, if he's done this, and that means that. We now have the ability to continue to visit mm-hmm. uh, this area of the ocean and the seabed, and now we can begin to take oil uh, soil samples, which is something that Cameron wants to do. Yeah. So, of course, you have the trickle-down effect. That doesn't mean that we're all going to be in submersibles in 10 years going down to the Mariana Trench, but it does mean that it makes uh, the technology a little bit easier for others to follow suit. Yeah, and speaking of uh, trickling down, I found it uh, interesting that um, inside of this pressurized cockpit, um, they had this system set up to where uh, moisture from Cameron's uh, exhaled breath uh, and his sweat uh, leaked down into a plastic bag. And the idea here was that if he um, if he had to stay down there longer and, and outlasted his water supply, he could then drink the contents of this bag. Which has parallels with space flight, right? Because yeah. um, we know that the same sort of technologies are used when you're somewhere and uh, you're in a confined space. Right. There's a lot of crossover, yeah, between the exploration of space and the exploration of the deepest uh, portions of the ocean. I mean, both hostile, extreme environments for humans. We were made to, we, we evolved to live on a very uh, narrow portion of the Earth's surface. And if you go too high, you go too low, uh, we're dead unless we bring uh, the appropriate technology with us to bring a little of our uh, our habitat uh, with us into these hostile settings. Yeah, again, there's that theme of augmentation again mm-hmm. showing up, uh, particularly this year. All right, so um, other things that have been building this past decade that are gaining more ground and are getting more exposure have to do, of course, with neuroscience. Yes, and um, specifically erasing your memories, which, again, it's a, not a new thing, but uh, it gained some traction again this year. Yeah, I mean, people have been wanting to, to, to do this forever. I mean, the, we've discussed, like, the time and time again, like, the basic human condition and how wrapped up it is and, and worrying about stuff that's happened in the past and worrying about stuff to come in the future. And, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do about the future, but we've all, but I think everyone has thought, boy, I wish I could go back and erase that. Yeah, maybe you get more into the time travel mode of it. Like, I wish I could go back and fix that. But then when you realize that's impossible, you think, well, if I can't fix it, then at least I could forget that it, that it happened at all. I mean, it's the, um, you know, eternal sunshine of the, the spotless, spotless mind. mind. Yeah. Uh, could, kind of would scenario. you erase a memory if you could? Um, no. Because, I mean, there have been times in the past where I would have said, yes, I wish I could go back and erase this or erase that. But as you, the, and, you know, and maybe I just don't have bad enough memories that I that I would want to erase them. But ultimately, you reach that point where those memories inform who you are. You know, and to to take them away, uh, you know, that uh, that takes away from from what you become. But 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 again, where this really becomes important is with uh, the idea of dealing with really traumatic mm-hmm. memories. Mm-hmm. And uh, and ultimately, not as much uh, uh, the research we're looking at here, not as much the. Um, extinction of a memory, but the sort of... Uh, Formation of it, really. Yeah, yeah, but also the dulling of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we we did a whole episode, because uh, a couple of years uh, back um, at the World Science Festival, there was a lot of interesting talk about uh, being able to erase memories, alter memories, and, and some of it was pretty drastic, like this one um, substance that could just sort of clear the mind, like reset the computer entirely, uh, that no one has actually tested on, on a human, and we can just sort of imagine what it might be like. Is uh, this PMKZ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one where it was like, well, could you, would it be like the born identity? 
it, could you erase your memory and you'd still know kung fu? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, one study we were looking at from Uppsala University, uh, they, uh, they were looking specifically at this uh, reconsolidation phase. Now, if you remember from when we talked about this before, this is the idea that when you think back to something, to a memory, you're not going and looking at something that is set in stone. Memory is is weird. Memory is uncertain. Memory, it's unstable, really. Yeah, it's unstable because every time, think of a memory as a little, like something happens and your brain like makes a little uh, clay sculpture of what it would, of what happened. It's like, all right, I was, uh, I was stabbed by an elephant. All right, so uh, here's a, you know, a little clay model of an elephant in a trench coat with a switchblade. Yeah, with a big, big, well, yeah, big shank. Yeah. All right, so then I put that away in the drawer of the memory, right, and leave it there. And then when I think about it again, I get that little uh, clay model back out. But in handling it uh, and in reconceptualizing it, I end up changing things. Uh, and th- but this is the this is the state where it's malleable. It's in my hands. So uh, researchers have have, uh, have for a while realized that the reconsolidation phase. This is when you want to alter a memory, alter the impact of a memory, or potentially erase it. Because this is where it's it's uh, vulnerable. Well, it gets anchored in our brains by proteins in this reconsolidation. Mm-hmm. So yes, this is where you'd want to interrupt uh, the the actual final consolidation of it. Uh, so long term, real quick, long term memory is based on the formation of several proteins. These proteins are part of the consolidation process that you spoke of. And that occurs when a person learns something new. Remembering something causes the memory to become unstable for a short amount of time, only to recover through another consolidation process, which is what you just talked about. So these researchers uh, had test subjects look at neutral images. Yes. And then they shocked the bejesus out of them. This is crazy, but yes, they did that. And the reason they did that is because they needed them to associate these images with a memory, right? So they would see like an image of maybe an elephant holding a switchblade. And then they would, (laughs) they would become shocked. It's like, whoa. So now, of course, the the idea is that you see an image of an elephant holding a switchblade again. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you're going to react because it's it's associated with a shock to your system. You'll have a fearful memory, right? right? Uh, So now they divided the groups. And this is where they started to try the consolidation process and figure out if they could game the system a little bit. And the first group, their consolidation process was disrupted through multiple presentations of the picture while the con- con- excuse me, the consolidation process of the second group wasn't interrupted. Yeah. And so what they did, though, is that after this process, the picture was shown to the group again. So what they discovered is that the group that had their consolidation process inhibited, uh, the fear that was previously associated with the picture completely dissipated. And then what they found um, is that the consolidation process, when it is interrupted, then the memory no longer can incite fear. So what they did is that to corroborate this, they used an MRI scanner, and that showed that the remains of that particular fear memory had also been erased from the nuclear group of the amygdala. We know that amygdala processes fear. So, yeah, so just another step forward uh, towards this possible future where we can go back and systematically erase memories. Uh, but certainly more near term gives us a lot more ammo towards treating uh, traumatic memories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of a, like a more enlightened version of, uh, of you know, confronting your fears, that kind of a thing. Because uh, certainly when you confront a fear, you are taking it out of the cabinet, holding it in your hands, and it is susceptible to change, to, to, uh, to, 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 to altering uh, what the memory exactly is and ultimately how we feel about it. 
And I feel like this also underscores a bit of uh, about what we talked about in 2012 is this idea of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And certainly consciousness is made of memories and experiences. And we talked about the fallibility of this um, idea that consciousness could be um, something that is solid and sturdy, when in fact we know that things like this, memory, um, can really color uh, the uh, the feeling of that consciousness that day. And that feeling makes us who we are, mm-hmm. right? So again... Interesting to see how much of our brain, this plasticity, lends itself to more of an unstable quality, or rather a changeable quality of our brains. And this leads us to another uh, interesting uh, bit of science that, that also drives on this idea that who we are, is, that the human experience itself is not quite what we often think it is, what we take it uh, for granted to be. And this, of course, concerns uh, toxoplasmosis. Now, toxoplasmosis, which uh, in brief, we're talking about the cat parasite. You know, the idea that you're, you're cleaning out the cat's litter box, you're a little too uh, handy in there, you know, you start confusing with the sandbox, uh, you could potentially pick up some of this uh, this parasite, it goes through your body, it alters your mind. Because the idea is that this parasite has uh, been pooped out of the cat, wants to get inside of the rat, and then once it is in the rat, wants to return to the cat. And so how do you get a rat to return to the cat? Uh, sound like I'm doing some sort of Susian mm-hmm. thing here. But how do you get the, the rat to return to the cat? Well, you, you sort of hack the rat's brain to make it take more risks, to make it crave cat urine, uh, that kind of thing, so that it could put itself in a position to be eaten by the cat and return, and finish its life cycle. So this has been in the news for a while. Uh, there was like a bunch of stuff about it back in 2009 um, and stuff before that. Uh, scientists continue to study it because it's a, it's, it's a remarkable organism, uh, and it Obviously, given the, the uh, how many domestic cats out there, it, it has a huge impact on human culture. Uh, yeah, and the fact that, that this parasite could disconnect the fear part of the brain in, yeah. in rats was terrifying, but also made some people step back and say, to what extent does the parasite operate in a human being? Right. So it, it keeps coming back in the, in the news because, on one level, we continue to research it, so in, every now and then there are some new findings. Mm-hmm. But then it's also it's it's like those weird emails that your mother or your your uh, your uncle sends you, you know, where it'll be something crazy, and you're like, "Come on, dude, just look it up on Snopes. It's not true." You right. know, but but it get but people keep resending them because it connects with them instantly. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if you get the one like Mars will be as big as the moon in the Earth sky uh, this weekend. Uh, I, have you received this one? I have not. Uh, it goes out periodically, and of course, it's completely nuts. There's no way that that happens, um, not without just. Just catastrophic, you know, uh, repercussions. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's not going to happen. But but it, it it affects us in a way, you know. We're like, oh wow, that's going to be really crazy. Uh, that's really going to affect me personally. Uh, I'm interested in sending this on. So when the stories come out about the cat, it's like, whoa, I have a cat, or my mom has a cat, uh, and that the parasites in that cat could be changing the way she thinks. I mean, it 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 has this impact on our lives, and it involves cats. So of course we're going to be crazy about it. Yeah, and it, the, the takeaway from this is not that if you have a cat, you are probably crazy, right? Or that they're going to some the parasite is going to make you crazy. Yeah. That is not the takeaway. The takeaway is that the, the parasite, it, and it's still research that's being done, it does seem to have some changes in personality in humans. Mm-hmm. And uh, biologist Yaroslav Flegar is, is actually the person who spoke about this at length, and um, this was. In an Atlantic article, How Your Cat is Making You Crazy by Kathleen McAuliffe, um, 
again, the cat's not making you crazy, but that's the title of the article right. that goes into more detail about this. Uh, but what it really points to is that, you know, at some point we're all being gamed by mo- microscopic puppeteers yeah. at some level. And I wanted to point to a study at Colorado State University that showed that when subjects were given a flu vaccination, which stoked the subject's immune response, they doubled the amount of people they came into contact with during the time that they were maximally contagious. So, again, here's this idea that people, when they had this flu vaccine and when they were contagious, were a lot more social than they would normally be. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this the, the flu that is actually gaming them to do this, to change their personality? And that's the question that... Um, that biologists are trying to get to is to what extent do parasites and bacteria change the way we think? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, this the important part about the story is not that toxoplasmosis is having an impact on who we are and how we think, but that it drives home how many things have an impact on who we are and how we think. And again, who we are, how we think, the human mind, it's not set in stone. It's affected by so many different variables, and uh, and and science has a wonderful way of revealing uh, that to us. And if I were David Eagleman and I was sitting here in my fancy jeans and my cool coat, I would mm-hmm. probably say, which leads us to ask the question: Do we really have free will if all of these agents are acting upon us? He doesn't yeah. really talk like that, but I'm being him. So <laughs> there you go. All right, so there you have it. That is not all the science that took place in 2012 by any stretch of the imagination, but those are some of the the big stories. Uh, and you, you you may have heard of most of them. You may have heard of all of them. Uh, but uh, this is just about rewinding, looking back at what happened, and then looking uh, looking ahead to where we're going in the future. So uh, if you have any feedback on any of that, if uh, there was a particular story that that we uh, we didn't cover that you think was uh, really key. I don't know, maybe uh, you know we should have talked more about uh, record meltdowns of Arctic sea ice, uh, uh, record high temperatures, or um, you know what have you. Uh, let us know. You can find us on Twitter, where we are Blow the Mind. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We are, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.